All right, well, happy Mother's Day to all our mothers here, and I'm sure there's some grandmothers here too. We're glad to have you here today if you are visiting with us, and obviously you who are at home as well. And I know it's, it's, it's nice, isn't it? Last year, probably a lot of us could not get together with our mothers, so it's, this has been great to be able to be with our mothers this year. But we welcome you if you're certainly visiting with us today. We're, we're glad that you're here, and um, whether you're with your mother or not. But please make sure if you haven't called her, called her. My son's in the Army, and I did send him a text this week. Please call your mother this week, all right? <laughs> Don't forget about your mom. Well, in the 1989 World's Fair in Paris, more than 100 different artists submitted plans and designs to design the masterpiece or the centerpiece of the exposition that year. And the winner was an engineer named, and you'll probably recognize his last name immediately, Alexander Gustav Eiffel, who proposed a 984-foot tower which at the time would have been the tallest building in the world. And a lot of skeptics that saw his design and heard about what he was going to do scoffed at it and said it was useless, it was artless. But Eiffel called her, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it in French, but it was called the Iron Lady, according to him. And Gustave Eiffel's name was actually on the tower, but Eiffel himself realized that even though it was his design, it was his vision for the Eiffel Tower, he also recognized that there were a lot of other people that helped lead him to this vision and to this uh, great structure. And he thanked 72 scientists, engineers, and mathematicians who he said he stood on their shoulders to do this. And their names are actually inscribed on the tower. Has anybody ever been and actually seen that in person? Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. A lot of y'all have. Okay, that's good. That's interesting. So the tower also relied on 300 riveters, hammermen, and the carpenters who put together over 18,000 pieces. And that piece took, that wrought iron piece, that Eiffel Tower, took two years, two months, and five days to actually construct. And then there were also an acrobatic team that was hired by Eiffel to help the workers learn to maintain their balance on those very thin beams during times of gusty winds. And then also he said that we needed to thank, people have said we needed to thank the Paris Council that voted in 1909 not to tear down the um, tower despite the fact that the 20-year-old permit had expired. So they voted not to do that. And the tower's longevity also depends on each council member each year to not vote against tearing that down again. So that's just a little bit of history. Well, throughout history, not only this, but throughout history, there have been many amazing discoveries, inventions, and projects that we've all heard about, had to learn about. But most always, those projects involve a lot of people. Yeah, there's somebody who has a name that's attached to that invention or that project that probably spearheaded it. But there have always been lots of people behind theirs. There's stories behind these discoveries, inventions, and they always involve a vision, don't they? There always has to be a vision behind each of them. And people along the way that took that vision and actually brought it and brought that passion and that vision to a reality. So this morning, just to ask you, how many of y'all, if you can just think about it in your own life, there's probably been somewhere at some point that you've been a part of some 
big project that was somebody else's vision, but you liked the vision, you got on board with the vision, and you said, yeah, I want to be a part of that, and you were a part of that, and you probably remember the vision and the enthusiasm that went along with that vision and got that project going and kept it going all the way to the end. Now, I thought about one of those things in this building right here. I think we're going to actually be in our third year here. It's hard to believe it's been our third year. But I remember at the very beginning of this, I want to say it was probably 2012 that we really started talking about moving from East Point to Noonan and building a new building. And I had never even built a doghouse, so I didn't know anything about those kind of things. But it was quite an education for me. But to watch every step and to realize all the different people that were a part of bringing this building to this place is, is really amazing when I think about it. And I'm very grateful to everybody that was a part of that vision. I remember when it was just the land we bought, and I remember walking through, and you could hardly get through here. I think there were a few deer stands and some trees around here. Um, and then all of a sudden we cleared the land, and then all of a sudden we started seeing it start to take shape with the, the metal beams going up. And some of y'all remember when we actually got into a point where we could come in and see it. We came in before the drywall went up and a lot of that stuff, and we took uh, Sharpies and we marked all over the beams writing our favorite uh, Bible verses and some of our names. So behind all these walls are a lot of Bible verses and a lot of names. On these, under the carpet, there's things written on these concrete slabs that people came in ahead of time and recognizing that we were asking God to bless this vision. So it all came about, and that was something that I was a part of that's been something that I will always remember the rest of my life. So all of us probably have those, but we've been going through this series in Nehemiah called Vision Reconstruction, and if you haven't been here, that's okay. Um, we're talking about Nehemiah. Some of you may go, who is Nehemiah? He's an Old Testament character. He was actually cupbearer to the king, and the king at that time that he was uh, the cupbearer for, and what that means is, if you don't know, is that means you taste the food, you drink the drink before the king does, so just in case he's poisoned, you die instead of him. So it's a great job to have. But um, he was uh, uh, quite a visionary, and he was uh, originally, his people were from Jerusalem, but in 586 B.C., um, uh, the whole city of Jerusalem was taken over by their enemies, and it was absolutely destroyed and burned down, and the walls were broken. And like I've been saying, in those days, they took the people that were left, and they took the enemy would take them. They wouldn't let them stay in their, their home after they destroyed it. They actually carted them all the way back to Babylon. And uh, the Babylonians did that. And then a few years later, the Persians would take over, and there was a king who let some of them go back and start to rebuild the walls. But Nehemiah himself never was born or raised in Jerusalem. He was in captivity in Babylon, but he's heard his whole life from his parents, from his grandparents, from people in his community that, man, back in the day, Jerusalem was this great town. We all lived there. It was this thriving place, and the temple was magnificent. And he's heard this his whole life, and now he's in the service of the king. And one day he goes to the king, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, and the king recognizes him, that he's very sad that day, and he goes, What's with you today? He goes, this can only be sadness of heart. Something's bothering you. Tell me what it is. And he goes, why shouldn't I be sad? You know, the place where all of my parents grew up, of all my people, is in shambles. And the king literally asked him, what do you want? He goes, I want to go back there and I want to rebuild the walls. And he goes, okay, how long is it going to take you? And so he's able to go 
And the king not only gives him permission and gives him this period of time to do it, but he also gives him letters to get through all the different regions, which is like 700 to 1,000 miles back to Jerusalem. And he gives him all the letters to get through there. And he gives him the resources of, 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 of lumber and timber and all these different things he's going to need to rebuild the walls. And so he starts. And then last week we learned he gets back to Jerusalem. He makes an assessment and goes, this is a mess and he gathers all the people together, and they go, hey, this is a mess. The walls are broken down. They're like, really? You're telling us the walls are broken down? You don't think we know this? We live here. We see it every day. But he's going, but no one's done anything about it. It's been over 100 years, and the walls are still in shambles. This, this city is broken down. And then he tells them this story about God's hand was on me. I prayed that God would give me favor in, in front of the king, and God did. And that's why I'm here. And it's not only me, but I've got all these people with me. I've got all these resources with me. And God's hand has been on me the whole time. And when they heard that, everybody that knew the walls needed to be fixed finally go, we're in. We want to be a part of this. We want to help you do this. And they're ready to start building. So that's where we are in um, Nehemiah today. Now, they knew the problem and they knew the solution, but they had no motivation up until this point to do anything about it. And now with Nehemiah there and the king, and he's given his resources, and Nehemiah has this vision and he has this plan that they've bought into, they're ready to start. Now, this project was much more than just taking a nation that, as Nehemiah said, was in disgrace. But it was much more than just a, a construction project, too. It was much more than that. It was more than a project set just to put this protective boundary around uh, Jerusalem for those living there. It was more than reestablishing their identity as a nation and a people, although all of that was a part of it. But it was an opportunity for them to reflect who God was. Now, God's plan has always been, even in the Old Testament to save all of humanity. Sometimes we read the Old Testament because, yeah, well, that was all for the Jewish people. No, it was for all of humanity. The Jewish people were his chosen people to show the rest of the world what God's plan was for everybody. And they were supposed to reflect who God was, his character, what it means to be in relationship with him. But they did a lousy job of that sometimes. And they took that as, well, we're God's people and we can do whatever we want and we don't have to follow the rules and we don't have to follow the covenant. And ultimately, God says, yeah, you do. Because you're my people, and you're supposed to be reflecting who I am, and you're not. So I'm going to take that away from you for a while. And they've experienced that, and that's why they have these broken down walls. So now this is an opportunity that God has put on Nehemiah's heart to say, we're going to rebuild these walls because it's more than just a construction project. It's an opportunity to reflect to the rest of the world. We know that we're an out of sorts with God. We know there's been a broken relationship with him, and we want to restore that. And these walls are going to be a way to do that. And so the people needed to embrace their identity, their calling, and their legacy as a people. And that legacy included a plan that would eventually lead to Jesus Christ coming into the world to save the whole world. Now, whenever you start a project, as you know, it can seem overwhelming, too big or too hard. Now, I talked about last week, sometimes we have things in our life that are broken down in our lives, and we, we know they're broken down. Now, there's personal things, but sometimes it's just things in our house like, yeah, the garage is a mess. I know how to fix that. I just haven't done it. So interestingly enough, I mentioned that last week. So yesterday I'm coming home from a ball game with my uh, youngest son, Sawyer. We've been had a couple of ball games and we're coming in. And as I'm driving in the driveway, I go, oh, no, everything that was in the garage was out in the driveway. And I go, she's decided to clean out the garage today. OK, and she did a great job. God bless her the day before Mother's Day. I don't know what prompted her, but we knew that garage was a mess. But then I got a little nervous because I'm seeing piles of stuff that involves my stuff 
that's in a pile, and it looks like it's a giveaway pile. And we go, whoa, what is going on here, you know? So we have these discussions. But this was something, and we have these things in our lives where we know they need to be fixed. We know the solution, but because of time or lack of energy or, or lack of motivation, they just don't get done. And that was one of those things. But, man, she's got, it, she's got it tidied up in there, and there's this whole pile of stuff that i got to go through, and i got to get it done. So we all understand that. But sometimes projects can seem overwhelming. But until someone starts it and shares their vision or a clear plan on how that's going to get done, a lot of people won't get on board. But when people hear there's a plan and they see clearly there's a vision and they're a part of that plan and vision, then they say, I'm on board. I want to be a part of that. It gets them excited. As we talked about, vision is a picture of the future that produces passion in people. And that's what it does, certainly. So without that clear vision and a clear plan, we can get bogged down. We can get bogged down into mediocrity or routine, and there's no motivation or inspiration to move forward. And we can't see anything new for the future, and so we just kind of learn to live in what we're living in. So last week we talked about some other things, maybe not cleaning out a garage or fixing a car or something like that, but sometimes there's broken things in our lives inside of us. Maybe there's broken things in, in maybe some of our relationships. And we know they're broken, and we know we need to restore them, but we've just kind of said, you know what, that's just the way it is. We're never going to be able to mend those fences. We're never going to be able to bring that relationship back together. And so we just kind of think it'll never happen. And so we just live in it, knowing that reconstruction needs to play, take place, uh, you know, restoration, but we lack the motivation or vision to start it. So maybe in your life and my life right now, we have some things at some points in our life. And here's another kind of picture of it. Sometimes it can be a vision that we had at some point in our life, maybe when we were younger or maybe at a different season in our life. And you say, I have this vision to do this in my life at some point. And you've thought about it, maybe even made some plans, but it's never happened. Life happened and that vision has kind of evaporated into a vision that used to be rather than a vision that can be. And we no longer have the passion or the time or the energy to pursue that vision anymore. So I ask us this morning, who or what can kind of rekindle that, motivate, help us reconstruct our vision and actually get on that vision for your life again? What has happened that makes you think that it can't be done again? So we need to kind of look at those things. So I hope this will motivate it as we read through Nehemiah. Now we have to at some point believe that the vision we have for our life or maybe for the life of our kids or for our family or for our company or for our team, whatever that is, that vision has to be something that we really believe will make a difference if we see that vision through. And if, you're not, if you don't really believe it's going to make a difference, then you're not really going to put the effort in, are you? Think about it. Ultimately, Nehemiah had to motivate these people that if we rebuild these walls, it's going to change not just that we have nice walls around our city now. It's going to change a lot of things, and it's going to change us in, internally to recognize we're God's people. We're not only restoring walls, but we're restoring our relationships with one another. We're coming back to unity, and we're saying to the world, we are God's people, and we're going to start reflecting that. But think about some other things in life where we have to decide, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it for me to go get counseling for my marriage or for my family? Is it really worth the effort to do that? Is it really worth the, re the effort for me to go to my boss and instead of going to my manager, but go directly to the, the boss and say, I need to tell you about this problem that I see in this company and I've got to say something to you about it. Is it, will exercising really make a difference in my life? If I start exercising today or tomorrow, will it really make me feel better and have a better image of myself? And will I really start looking better if I really go through the effort of exercising? 
Will going to college and getting a degree really matter in my life? Does it really matter if I bring my kids forward and dedicate them in front of the church and, and try to instill those godly values in that? Is that really worth the effort? What difference will it make if I make a plan to get out of debt in my life and in my family's life? Is that really worth it? What difference does it make if I go to this mission trip that we're going to have in Guatemala this summer? What difference will it make if I volunteer to help somebody out in Noonan who has trees all over the yard? What difference will it make if I start going to that small group? Now, I could go on and on, but I'm simply throwing those things out there that we think about that we can do, but sometimes we go, was that, was that really going to make a difference? Is it going to be worth my effort? And we have to kind of process all those things. But godly vision will produce a passion for that vision and the difference that not only it will make in my life, but hopefully in the life of others too. But the enemy wants us to believe that it's not going to matter. It's not worth it. Now, I've mentioned some three people in particular during Nehemiah that we're going to read about, and I can't pronounce their names very good, so I'm just going to call them the irritators, okay? But we're going to see them. We've seen them already in the first two or three chapters, and you're going to see them all the way through this reading of, of uh, this writing of Nehemiah where they're going, y'all can't do that. What are you trying to do? You're not going to be able to build those walls back. Why are you trying to do this? It's never going to happen. And they're saying this. All their enemies are trying to discourage them. But through this whole thing, Nehemiah goes, no, God's on our side. You're not. You're not going to discourage. You can say whatever you want. You can have whatever bad feelings you want to have about it. But God's in this, and we're going to accomplish this. And the enemy wants us to believe in our lives that the things that we can do to try to, to get counseling, to go to school or whatever it is, go to the boss, it will be a wasted effort. It's not going to matter. The project isn't worth it. The time and resources will be wasted. People aren't worth the effort. Other people won't appreciate your efforts. We hear those kind of lies all the time, and it's, it, it keeps us from going forward, doesn't it? And we need to not listen to those lies. They leave us doubting. They leave us... Uh, not being able to reach our dreams and fulfill what God's called us to do. But somehow, Nehemiah convinced and inspired these people. They had all those negative voices, but when he came in, something changed because of the plan and the vision that he shared with them. As we saw last week, they were ready to start the project. They knew what needed to, needed to be done. They were very aware of that, and they just needed the resources. And now they had a clear vision, and they knew that God's hand was with them. They started to do this project. They said, I'm in. So that's where we are in chapter 3 today. Now, I know some of you are going, this is Mother's Day. Why are you talking about Nehemiah? Okay? But we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Hang with me about the mother thing, all right? So we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're just going to read the first two verses. Chapter 3 is really long, but it's very significant because over the years, this is such a detailed chapter of the different gates and walls that were in um, Jerusalem that a lot of archaeologists go back to this third chapter of Nehemiah and go, when we found this stuff, this seems to be connected to those walls because it was such a detailed uh, listing of all the walls that were in Jerusalem. So this is something that archaeologists really like in figuring out what was going on in Jerusalem in that time and the layout of the land. So I'm going to read chapter 3. It's long. We're not going to read but a few verses. I want to encourage you to read it because you'll see all the diversity that's in these people. All right. So verse 1 of chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Now we think the sheep gate was probably where all the sheep went in when they had to make sacrifices with sheep. This is where that gate was where they let them in and, and for part of worship. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hanel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, uh, son of Emery, built next to them. Now, let me go, okay, I don't know any of those guys. 
What does that mean? Well, they built this. And what it starts, this is significant that at the very start of this project of building the walls, who is starting the project? Who is the first person that's mentioned? The high priest and all of the other fellow priests. This is strategic, I'm convinced, by Nehemiah. He's saying if God's hand is in this, and he probably talks to them ahead of time and says, look guys, you're the spiritual leaders of this community. I need you to be the first ones that are a part of this and are building. Because if we're saying this is from God, and I believe it is, I need you as the high priest, as the spiritual leaders of this community, to show that you're on board with this and that you're going to be a part of it. I know you're not construction workers, but seeing you out there swinging a hammer and doing whatever it takes to make this happen is going to be important. So I need you to do that. And they were. They said, we're in. Now, I want to just say as a little footnote during my lifetime, the preachers in my life that have made a, a, a huge impact on me is because they were a part of any vision they shared in the church. They didn't just stand in the pulpit and talk about it. They were actually out there. And I'll just say just one small thing is my uh, preacher, I remember my preachers being at summer camp with us when I was little. And I remember at some point, I don't know how old I was, but I thought, why are they here? I remember the preacher, the uh, preacher Jim, who was here 38 years. He was our preacher. And I remember I was like 10 or 11 years old, and we got him as our cabin dad. Can you imagine the preacher's your cabin dad? No fun in here. What do we get him for, you know? And, but we had to toe the line because it was preacher. But I, I, I thought, he's sleeping in this hot cabin, sweating like we are. He's eating this food that we are. Why is he here? He doesn't have to be, but he believes in camp, and he believes that this is an environment where kids need to know about Jesus and have fun and connect all of that together. And that made a huge impact on me and, and, and them being there and saying that, hey, I don't just talk about, hey, y'all should go to camp, kids. They were actually there and were a part of it. And so it starts with these uh, spiritual leaders, and they're leading the way. And there's a principle here that I don't know if you picked, on, uh, picked up on that Nehemiah uses. And he's saying, hey, you know what? You're going to build in front of your house. You're going to build in front of where you walk by every single day. Now think about that. Um, he had many and various people groups work on the walls right in front of their houses or their places of business or in part of the temple. All these priests, they're doing it right in front of the temple. Now think about what that, the implications are. So I'm going to go to the end of chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, and listen to what this says. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shekinah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to them... Meshulam, son of Barakah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Do you see what? This is strategic. Nehemiah has a great plan. Fix it in front of your, your own house. Why? Why does that matter? Well, think about it. If you don't have to observe your work again, think I'm just going to do this and I'm never going to see this again, then you might kind of choose to cut some corners and go, well, I'm never going to see it. Let's just get it done. But if you know you're going to see it again, you're going to do a much different job, aren't you? Every day, it's going to have your name on it. It's a reminder of your efforts. And you want those efforts to be admired by people who go, wow, who did that? That's great work. I remember when me and my wife first got married, we were turning a screened-in porch into a uh, sunroom. And she asked her uncle to come down. We lived at Florida at the time. And he was a remodeler, so I was just a grunt worker. You know, I was like, I'll hand you whatever. I'll do whatever you tell me, but you do it. So he got everything done but the drywall. And so he left. He goes, oh, you can do the drywall. And my wife goes, oh, yeah, you can do the drywall. You've been on those mission trips. You can do the drywall. And I was like, I ain't doing the drywall. Because every time somebody comes in this sunroom, they go, who did the drywall? 
and it's going to be Craig. That's awful. So, no, I hired that out because it had a lot of little different things and cuts. And I was like, man, I, I've done these basic houses with somebody telling me what to do in Mexico, but I ain't going to do this. I can't do that. I just, it's not that good. So sometimes we have to have somebody that can really do it because you want it to be something you're, you're, you take pride in. So now this strategy leads to doing it right in front of the house. Now think about what that means. You have to look at it every day and see the quality of it. You want it to look good and well-constructed. You want it to be secure because it's right in front of your house. You don't want somebody busting through the wall in front of your house. People around you will know, who did that? Hey, did you, who built that wall? Well, it's right in front of their house. They did it. So everybody's going to know. So everybody knows because everybody's building in front of the house. Now y'all know that's true because probably on the way to church this morning, as you're coming out of your neighborhood, you were probably ragging on somebody in your neighborhood, weren't you? You're going, why don't they cut their grass? Why don't they ever edge? Why don't they always have that junk in their yard? I wish they would clean that. That makes the whole neighborhood look bad. Why did they paint their house that color? Those kind of things. Before you even got to church. So we understand when you take pride in what's right there, but when you go by somebody's yard, you go, man, their yard looks good. Man, they take pride in the yard. Their house always looks so nice because it's something that's important to them. And we read through chapter 3, some of the different folks that were a part of this project were the priests that we've already mentioned, but he also mentions goldsmiths and perfume makers. And you go, what? What were they involved with it for? Because he said, everybody's got to be on board with this. I know goldsmith is your talent. I know making perfume is your talent, but you're going to be a construction worker during these months because we need everybody on board being a part of this. District officials, one district official in, at the end of chapter, or in the middle of chapter 3 mentions he did it with his daughters. He goes, daughters, you're going to work. We're all going to come and do this as a family. The Levites, the temple workers, merchants were involved in it, and they were doing, guess what, right in front of their store. That's where you're going to rebuild the wall so that you will take pride in this. So there were people who were not necessarily used to doing manual labor, not necessarily skilled in those things, but they were going to build the walls because this is a vision that they've all gotten on board with. There were also people who lived outside the city walls that are mentioned that helped with this project. And you go, well, if they didn't live in the city, why did they care? Well, if you live close to a big city, you want everything in that region to look good. So they were motivated by saying, hey, if Jerusalem is secure, if they're booming and doing well, then probably right outside the city, then I'll be doing well. I want to be a part of that. They caught a part of the vision and helped do that. And maybe it was a source of income, but, but regardless of the case, they seem to have bought in on this uh, on this vision and reconstruction project wholeheartedly and helped. And all of these folks worked together to make this happen. They had to have the same vision. And this is something that we need to work on in our culture right now, don't we? We have a lot of different visions out there of what things should look like. And people have different thoughts on it. And what we do sometimes is we, we divide people and say, all of them think about it this way, so they're the enemy. And these people over on this side, they think about it this way, so they're the enemy. And we try to destroy each other. And at some point, we've got to say, wait a minute, I know we differ on a lot of things, but what do we agree on? And let's come together on that and try to work towards doing this for the sake of everybody. And too many times we see division and we think it's about winning rather than, hey, let's make it better for everybody. So just a, a, an illustration on that, uh, some Western missionaries who had gone to uh, the Philippines to do mission work were there for quite a while and they had a house and one day they were out playing croquet in their front yard and they were hoping to get some of their neighbors to come play, but this was a completely new game. I don't know how many of y'all know much about croquet, it's kind of an interesting game. 
Um, but anyway, uh, they started playing on their front lawn, and some of their neighbors came out. And as the game, he, he, the, the missionary was teaching them, this is how you play. He was telling me, you got to go through the wickets, and you hit this ball. And then he came to the point where, if you've ever played croquet, there's a point where if, you, if, you're, if one of your uh, opponent's balls near you, you take your foot, and you can hit their ball and knock it way, way out of the way. And it's really fun to do that if you're into that kind of cruel stuff in a game, all right? So... So as he's explaining this, one of the, the locals there got to the point where he had an opportunity. And he goes, hey, man, you can knock his ball out. And you knock it way up there. And the guy goes, why would I want to do that? And he goes, so you can win. That's why you would want to do that. But the guy responds, I'm not going to do that. And the missionary just couldn't quite understand. He said, this guy's only in a loincloth. He's playing croquet in his front yard. But he just could not understand. In their culture, it was a, a hunting and gathering society. And People could not win or they could not survive by competing with one another. They had to share equally in every activity. So this was just completely foreign to them to treat. So as the game went on, everybody that was a local from that place, every time they had the opportunity to knock their opponent out of the way, none of them would do it. You know, and the missionaries go, what's wrong with y'all people? Don't you want to win? So they all just cheered everybody on as they got through all the wickets. And at the end, they all said, we won, we won. And the missionary just couldn't quite grasp that. But see, that's that Western thought process that sometimes is not that important. And this is how the church should function. Not saying we've got to win our way, but how can we bring everybody together to make this the best opportunity for everybody? And although I've only, uh, I have only uh, read a few verses of Nehemiah today, I want to encourage you all to read through the rest of that and read the different projects that were going on. And if we could real quickly show those pictures so you can kind of get a picture of what. Now, this is a diagram of all the different gates. Some of them we, we talked about, but you can see how all they're all color-coded. And, and Nehemiah had an awesome plan. Everybody had a section of the wall right in front of where they lived. All right, and so you can see how all of that came about, and we're going to see it as we keep going through Nehemiah, but let's go to the next picture, and you can kind of see, this is what the end result would look like, something like that, that's what Jerusalem, it's up on this hill, and these walls, and everybody was a part of rebuilding these walls, pretty cool, so hopefully that visual will help you kind of get a, an idea of what, what we were talking about. So as we close today, I do want to bring this in, some of us need to to reconstruct our vision on what God wants for our lives. We may think our efforts are not significant, but our efforts are always significant when we're doing something that God's called us to do. God created us, Paul says in Ephesians, to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So none of those good works are insignificant, and none of those good works, are, they're always going to be leading us to something God has called us to do. So today is Mother's Day, and you go, well, that's not a Mother's Day sermon. You've been talking about walls all day. But I do want to say this. There's nothing in Nehemiah that says anything about his mama. But this is what I believe. This is just Craig thinking out loud here, speculating here. And sometimes that gets preachers in trouble. But I can bet you that Nehemiah told her son from the day he was born how wonderful Jerusalem was. She told him from the very day he was a little bitty boy, we used to live in Jerusalem. It was an awesome place, and God blessed us. And we had this awesome Solomon's Temple that was just magnificent. And we would go to worship there, and you could just feel the presence of God. And our city was beautiful with these walls, and it was a bustling community, and it was just awesome. And the obvious question from Nehemiah was, well, what happened, Mama? Why are we all the way in Babylon? Why are we under the exile of the Babylonians and now the Persians? Why, why did that happen? Well, we forsook our God. God called us to be his people, and we sinned. What does sin mean, Mama? 
Well, it's when we know what God has called us to do and we rebel against it. And, and we thought because we were God's people, we didn't really have to follow the rules anymore. Really, Mama? Yeah. But God promised us there was always an alternative hope for the future, Nehemiah. There's always an alternative hope. If we will return to God, He will return to us and we will be back in His favor again. And that's what we need to do. That's what we're working towards right now, Nehemiah. And you know what? Nehemiah never forgot what his mom said. And he had this vision in his, in his life that when he got to be an adult, he is now making it a reality. And you go, that's not in the Bible. You're just making that up, Craig, for a sermon. Yeah, you're right. But I really believe it happened. I really believe that it happened. Because this is what I know about moms. Moms, you are the first vision casters for your kids, aren't you? You're the earliest vision casters. You're casting this picture for them of what their heart should be like, what their vision should be like for their life. And dad, you do it as well. But I absolutely believe that moms are the ones that are with the kids when they're little the most, and they cast those visions. She instilled in him, Nehemiah, who God was, the significance of that covenant that was made with Abraham so long ago and how that needed to be fixed, that needed to be restored. And she tried to change his vision into something that was in Babylon back to something that could be in Jerusalem. And she probably told him about how they, they as a people could be back in their God's graces again, and they would do that. So mothers, I want to encourage you today, never stop painting a picture of the future that produces passion in your kids. Never. They need that constant, no matter how old they get, they need to be reminded of that future that God has for them, that God has a vision for them, a future for them, and a relationship with their God and their creator, developing them into the men and women that God's called them to be, and you have an awesome job in doing that always. So thank you for that.